for Hyperloop TT, we, uh, you know, we're building this brand as you would any other iconic brand. So, you know, any of the these these iconic brands you can think of, we need to have a presence like, uh, you know, like like they would. Um, we need to the visual the visual the visual needs to be creative and stunning and, and interesting. Um, the you know all of the details we we need to really um, you know perform on a, on the highest level to to be able to bring this to life. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Such a fascinating conversation with Rob, CMO of Hyperloop Transportation Technology. So talk a bit about Rob's background, and then of course we get into the world of Hyperloop. So many of you have probably heard of Hyperloop like I had from when Elon came out, it was almost 10 years ago now, talking about building you know, this new transportation um, technology between LA and San Francisco, but actually, as Rob describes, the history of Hyperloop, the technology or the idea for the technology is over 150 years old, and there were patents on it over 100 years ago. So it's been around for a while. Obviously, Elon helped to popularize it, but it was so fascinating hearing about the technology, hearing about how Hyperloop Transportation Technology (HTT) how they structure their business. So they actually have a relatively small full-time team. I think it was 50 or 60 people, but 800 contributors that work part-time in exchange for equity. That was fascinating. It was fascinating hearing about how you build a brand for a product that doesn't exist, and actually it's a brand for the category in a way, and a lot of it is about credibility because there's regulation and safety as much as there is what are the reasons to buy the product when it actually comes out. So I don't want to give too much more away. I know that you, like me, are going to be fascinated by this conversation, so I'll just leave it there. Without further ado, please enjoy, as I know I did, my conversation with Rob Miller. Kicking things off, would love to hear about a brand that you're obsessed with right now. Uh, a brand that I'm obsessed with. What, what a good question. You know, I think for us in the uh, in the world of Hyperloop, we're you know we're uh, every day we're looking at how can we thinking about how can we how can we as a society decarbonize transportation. So um, for me, uh, everything everything else in our world that's going to help us to build this uh, this electric. The zero emissions future, from uh, electric vehicles to uh, to uh, drone delivery to vertical uh, eVTOL uh, tech. So there, there are a few really interesting players players in that space, and that's kind of where we're um, where we're geeking out. Of course, um, uh, you know, here on Earth and, and and in space, the James Webb Telescope is is another. So NASA is a, uh, still a brand that we're we're geeking out with these days. Oh, I love it. And like I mentioned before we started recording, I'm, I'm hoping that a friend of mine who works at NASA on the marketing and communication side is going to be here. But yeah, NASA brand having, a, having its moment coming back. Um, great. So Rob, why don't we start with a little bit of your story and then we can get into the meat of it, talking about Hyperloop transportation technology. But why don't you give a bit of an overview on your background? Because I think it's really interesting, You know, not just the role that you have now and having been in this world and at this business for six years now, but also you've got, you know, some businesses that you founded, you were at Cotton USA, and I know you lived overseas and worked overseas with them for a long time. So tell us a little bit about the story of uh, Rob and how you became a CMO. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's been an interesting and fun journey to get here. Not a, not necessarily a traditional one. I was, uh, uh, you know, I was a neuroscience guy who was headed to medical school. Uh, my last semester of university undergraduate, I did a, a semester on a ship called Semester at Sea, where we traveled around the world. And I, at that moment, decided that to uh, to to bag the to my much to my parents' uh, dismay, <laughs> to abandon the medical school dreams and. And pursue a dream of uh, you know seeing this big world. Uh, so I uh, you know I immediately I, I graduated, then uh, found a, a master's program in Japan, studying international relations. I thought that would be the best way to find a, a kind of multinational multinational job. Um, had this really unique opportunity with uh, with Cotton USA. We're helping to promote um, promote cotton around the world. Uh, that that put me on a uh, you know lived in Asia for ten years put me on an, an airplane uh, at least once a week for for more than a decade so uh, so my uh, you know my twenties uh, and thirties were really spent mostly getting from one place to another and uh, you know one of the opportunities I have living in Shanghai living in Tokyo um, was you know commuting by the bullet train in in Japan and taking the maglev train in, in, in Shanghai. So, you know, we, I'd seen this uh, advertisement for the bullet train at the time, and this is probably 10 years ago, so now it's 10 years older. But the bullet train is now 60 years old. They launched the bullet train in Japan almost 60 years ago, which is, which is for me, was absolutely fascinating because, uh, you know, growing up in the States and in, in, in a, in a car, car culture, to be able to travel by high-speed rail uh, was was very cool, and I thought, well, there's is there, you know, why haven't we evolved this? Why haven't we built this elsewhere? And then why why in sixty years have we not built anything better, faster, greener? And then, uh, you know, I I came I'd come back to the states and and was uh, you know really interested in in uh, tech and entrepreneurship and transportation, so I pivoted my career there. Had read about Hyperloop and thought, man, this is this is maybe the coolest coolest job on the planet, the coolest project on the planet. And had the was fortunate enough to meet the founders at South by Southwest uh, six years ago, seven years ago, and have uh, been fortunate enough to be with the company since. That's amazing. And uh, if my research is accurate, you speak fluent Japanese as well, right? Yeah, it's these days. It's just for ordering sushi, but there's no. <laughs> I really don't get much of a chance to practice. But it's funny that you say that about the the um, the train in Japan. That technology being 60 years old, I had a thought similarly because I saw somewhere there was a picture of the Concorde from like 1988 or whatever it was. I was like, you know, we had something. It was like the fastest flight from New York to London was like under three hours, and here we are now. You know, it doesn't run anymore, but we haven't moved things forward in any significant way when it comes to air travel. And obviously what you're doing with Hyperloop um, technology is trying to do that for train travel, which I will uh, comment having just booked my Amtrak from Boston to New York next week. Needs a, yeah, needs a bit of a leveling up, especially in the US. I mean, it's interesting, Eric, you mentioned the Concorde. I think there, there's, you know, I remember as a kid, we, I, you know, had this, this, this wealthy uncle, this Tio Rico, you know, we, uh, who, who uh, had the plaque on his wall because when, when you when you fly the, in the Concorde, you get this, you get a little certificate, and and I was, oh my gosh, you flew the Concorde. What was it like? It's like, well, it was loud, it was cramped, it was uncomfortable, but it was fast. So, uh, you know, there's there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the Concorde. I think for for us, we look at that as, all right, speed is not 
speed is something, but it's not everything, obviously. So, you know, building a transportation system, the, you know, speed is speed does captivate some people, but yeah, it's not going to get that alone is not going to get a hyperloop uh, to your city. Yep. So it's funny. I will, I will bring this up. I had, um, I had an old, um, a guy that I worked with on the agency side. He was the COO of, of VaynerMedia for a while. Now he's the CEO of Sasha Group, James Orsini. I'm going to have to send this episode to him just for the shout out. He had the coasters from the Concord in his office. And he would always talk about going back and forth between New York and London in the old agency days on the Concord. So good story. So with that, let's dig into it. So I am fascinated to learn get your perspective, get up to speed with everything that's going on in your world of uh, Hyperloop transportation technology, the actual business, and also Hyperloop as a technology overall. So why don't we start there, Hyperloop. So 150-year-old technology, it's not a new thing, but obviously became more mainstream with Elon Musk and his kind of announcements about the business that he set up focusing on the technology I think it was about 10 years ago. So why don't we start with Hyperloop, the technology, and then let's talk about Hyperloop transportation technologies, your business. So Hyperloop, the technology, can you give people the overview and a bit of the history to the extent that you know it and bring us up to where we are today? Sure. So, uh, you know, Hyperloop as a technology essentially is, if you think about the fuselage of an airplane, so a plane without the, without the wings and the tail, that essentially is a Hyperloop capsule. And we're, uh, uh, we're, what we're trying to do with Hyperloop is eliminate friction. So uh, you're driving down the road, you roll, you roll your window down, you're going uh, 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometers per hour, you put your hand out. That's the resistance, that's the friction that we face in transportation today. And that's why we're limited to, to be able to, to hit certain speeds because we can only, we can only, if you want to increase speed, you need to, uh, the the cost the the cost for is so high that the energy cost is so high that it makes it uh, makes it not feasible. So we're we use vacuum technology to create a low pressure environment inside the tube, about uh, between ten to hundred pascals, which is uh, you know roughly where the the Red Bull Stratus jump took place in, in the atmosphere. It's a, that's about the same atmosphere. Uh, and what that allows us to do is is um, is move very efficiently, uh, sustainably because we're using uh, renewable uh, energies uh, and safely. So, so that's the that's Hyperloop in a, in a in a nutshell. The the thing that um, a lot of people don't realize is that Hyperloop is a concept. You mentioned it is more than 150 years old. So in London and New York in the 1860s, we were we were building pneumatic tube subway systems. The first patent for Hyperloop was Robert Goddard. I think it was uh, 1918, 1919, somewhere around there. So 100 years old, um, and uh, it's it's really all based on existing technology. Now we're using uh, you know kind of a next generation maglev system uh, and improvements on on certain technologies. But but it's really about Hyperloop hasn't been built because it all hasn't been put together. So there's really nothing that's that's uh, really revolutionary about it. But the revolutionary thing is that um, we're we're in a world where the last major advance in in transportation was is uh, 60 70 years ago and if we were in if we were sitting at in in 1920 instead of 1922 instead of 2022 and we we're talking about the next generation of transportation we'd be excited about it because we've seen in our lifetime going from horse and buggy to 
to electric car, to train, to, and now airplane. And we've seen all that innovation in 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, fast forward 100 years and, and we're skeptical about it because, uh, you know, in my lifetime, uh, and, you know, I've, I've, everything from bullet train to tuk-tuk, transportation has not gotten better. Right. The, I mean, uh, now we're, we're in we're in a kind of a crowded summer season post pandemic where flights are full, lines are long. Uh, it's just really a miserable experience getting from from point A to point B. Uh, and we're, we're doing so in a way that's uh, that's really harmful to the planet. Um, transportation is almost a, a quarter of all carbon emissions worldwide. So we're. You know, we're polluting our planet. We're we're taking months and sometimes years off off of off of our lives, depending on where you live. Uh, so we have an opportunity now to to really reinvent transportation and and to to take the next step forward. And that's that's essentially hyperloop in a nutshell. Okay. And so then, where are we on that journey? So the concept of the technology, the patents for the technology, a hundred plus years old. Uh, obviously, it got a lot more attention with Elon. But where are we on that journey of actually realizing this technology? Maybe overall, because I know there's a few businesses and a lot of different people kind of looking at this space, and then specifically for Hyperloop TT. Yeah, we're it, it, one of the things about being with Hyperloop TT for now six, seven years is we've seen it. We've seen Hyperloop as a con, go from a, a concept to now a reality, and uh, we're at the point where it's no longer if Hyperloop, it's just a matter of when. When can you and I ride, and where will that first hyperloop be? So we've we've built the our, our first full scale uh, prototype in Toulouse, France, um, and uh, and now we're we're in a place where Italy is building the first ten kilometers of of hyperloop system that should be ready uh, mid mid decade, and then the first uh, the first commercial hyperloop hopefully will be will be riding and will be transporting uh, millions of passengers before the end of this decade. It's a it's a little bit of an ambitious goal, but we feel we feel uh, fairly confident that um, that it's happening pretty quickly. And the and and where will the footprint be? be? So it sounds like at least for the that initial build that's in Europe is that where your focus? Because I know what when Elon kind of came out with his thing, it was more San Francisco to L.A. But your footprint, and then also the footprint of the industry, the different businesses looking at Hyperloop, where where are they focused on building this out right now? Yeah, so I think you know if you look at if you look at rail travel, uh, there's uh, I mean there are, there are rail lines all over the world. So I think the same with the same with Hyperloop. We're looking at um, the the one thing we can't be as a company is we can't be a um, uh, an American company or we really can't be a European company because the opportunities uh, you know opportunities we our first uh, feasibility study was in the Emirates. Um, the second was Chicago to Cleveland to Pittsburgh. Um, one in India. Um, we have agreements with a few different countries around the world, so it's really. Uh, I think there's a there's a lot of interest. It's it's kind of a race to to see where the first commercial route will be. It looks like the first um, the first uh, ten kilometers will be in will be in Italy. It's fascinating. I I can't wait to dig into how you actually build a brand and market something like this that has so many different pieces, so many moving parts. Um, you know, so many pieces on the chessboard, as it will, as it were. But before we do that, I want to talk about the business of Hyperloop TT because it's it's very unique. So I know that you're a full time employee, and there are obviously full time employees. But actually, Hyperloop TT is a business. So you have over 800 people 
who you call contributors, who work a minimum of 10 hours a week in exchange for future stock options. So just want to make sure I got that right. And follow-up question, how, how do you make that work? How is it going? I mean, Eric, if you think about it, if, if you and I were to start a, uh, we were to go out and start a Hyperloop company tomorrow. So we're, we're starting our own Hyperloop company. Um, the, the resources we would need to do so. I mean, if you think about the engineering disciplines alone, aerospace, aeronautics, nuclear physics, vacuum technology, uh, and, and two dozen more. Uh, the, if, so we're, if we're, we're in Los Angeles or we're in London, the, the best people may not be here. The best people are probably working at places like JPL or, or, or Tesla or SpaceX or, or, or Boeing or Airbus or, or you know, any of the other companies that you can think of. And uh, you know, it's, a, it's a $1 billion proposition to do it in a traditional way. So, so for us, we, uh, we did a call to action early on uh, and uh, you know, and asked a, a community that, that that our founder had formed that if if Hyperloop was something that they wanted to take up a project that they wanted to take up, um, we talked to SpaceX. They said blast it off, and uh, you know, essentially we asked we we did a call to action for engineers to figure out back in 2013 if this was this Hyperloop concept was something that's actually feasible, and the the response that we got. Um, and what we said was we'll, you know, instead of, uh, you know, compensation, we'll, uh, you know, we'll give you equity in the company via stock options, work on this feasibility study for us and, and help us to determine if this is, if this is something that we should pursue. Um, we had this uh, amazing roster and, ama- and, and incredible interest around Hyperloop. Um, um, engineers from a lot of the companies that I'd mentioned um, and people that have done really great things like like build the, the, the CERN Large Hadron Collider. Um, there was even someone who's passed away since, but he, he'd worked on the Manhattan Project. So there, are, it, it was just an incredible group of people that came together uh, with, this, with this passion around this idea. Um, they took five months to, to study it. We came back with our initial feasibility study that said that it's a little bit different than, um, than was imagined originally, but... It's, it's all existing technology. It's absolutely feasible. So what we did was we initially we started, uh, our founders started a company that um, was really just based on uh, bringing people in for, for equity in the company. And uh, everyone, was a, everyone was a contributor in the beginning. Um, we focused on partnerships. So we, we tried to build best-in-class partners. And now we've, we've kind of grown to a little bit of a hybrid model um, because full time, I think full time employment is not for everyone. If you're, uh, you know, I remember early on, back in 2016, I was sitting in a room with our propulsion and, and uh, levitation team, and they were talking about the the levitation gap is is, is a really critical concept in, in maglev technology. If it's, you know, if it's uh, five millimeters too much, then you lose so much efficiency, and the whole concept isn't viable. So he he was talking about his time at Lawrence Livermore Lab, and uh, you know he he essentially went up to the wall. He said, you know, we we had this problem back in, in the early '90s. Uh, it took our team the month the month to figure out, and just wrote the equation on the on the board and said, here's the here's the answer. So you know, for us, it's been those those uh, those insights that we couldn't have gathered as a traditional startup, and um, the insights of working with. Uh, those uh, those in, in sometimes traditional transportation industries who are you know since we're standing on the shoulders of giants they've built great things 
um, they're helping us to to bring to bring Hyperloop to the world. So it's uh, I think it's a model of um, it's a model of partnership. It's a model of um, you know we can't do it alone, um, and accepting that uh, that you know, big society's big challenges require sometimes um, radical ways of collaboration. Um, we were com- we were mostly I mean we have we have an office in LA and we have an office in um, in Dubai. Um, small one in and and uh, the center in Toulouse, small one in Spain, but we're mostly remote, working remotely, pre-pandemic. So once we got the, um, you know, back in 2020, we just kind of kept going as as we were. So it was a little bit of a radical idea in, in 2019, but now, uh, you know, now it's kind of uh, the the world is doing the same thing. So you have over 800 contributors. How many full-time employees are there? We have uh, between fifty and sixty full time okay. full time employees, and and for us, it's always we uh, you know we want to keep a small a small core group, and we'll be we'll be growing that in the future, but never in the I think not in the case where we'll we'll have two thousand, three thousand, four thousand people. It'll always be uh, I know a combination. And do you leverage a contributor network on the marketing side as well, or is that a full time slash agency team more of a traditional setup? I, I do, and and that's been I mean, from a management perspective. It's been a it's been a learning curve. It's it's interesting. Uh, you know, I'll get uh, you know in the beginning, I had uh, uh, you know this. Uh, he was a fairly successful lawyer who loved writing and loved um, science fiction writing and loved writing about Hyperloop. So he would call me every week and say, "How can I? You know, how can I help? What can I? What can I write about?" and uh, you know, I mean, and, uh, you know, he would take some time on the weekend and, and, and put some things together. Some of it was, was, uh, you know, a little bit out there, but, but, uh, often it was, it was helpful and, and, and non-traditional. So we have that kind of passion with, with our group. Um, we've been fortunate enough that, that Harvard Business School has published two, uh, two case studies on us. Um, I get the opportunity once a semester to, to, to kind of teach the case at Harvard, USC, and a, a few other universities. So, yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting journey, um, and uh, you know it's one I think that that um, is is two things. I mean, one is it's fueled mostly by passion, so you know there's much less of a carrot and a stick of traditional uh, traditional arrangements. My entire marketing and and most of the design team we've built by uh, you know we we bring on a contributor who's who's uh, seems like they can provide value. And they're absolutely amazing once you start working together. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I'd say, uh, hey, Juliet, you, ha- you absolutely have to be a part of the team full time because, you know, and this is not something that, that I could predict. I'm not good enough to predict it by resume. Um, but by working together a little bit, you, you realize. And so that's how we build our, our core team is, is that, you know, we found the, the people that uh, kind of work best in our culture. And we've, you know, we realized that we, you know, we can't let them go in a sense. So how long do contributors need to commit for in order to have the chance to get involved? I'm uh, asking for a friend here. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, Eric, we, we started off with the idea of, okay, 10 hours a week minimum, but we've relaxed that. And, you know, it's really, it's really situation dependent. So um, we have, we have some specialized engineers who we, we really don't need weekly and, and they sometimes they don't have time weekly, but, you know, as we, as we confront problems, we can, we can pull in teams together to help to, to help to solve them. So, 
there's a lot of flexibility around our contributor model now. Fascinating. Okay. So drilling into your marketing team. So what does that look like in terms of full-time people, contributors that you tap into external support like agencies or, you know, more pay as you go freelancers? What does the actual marketing function look like within HTT? So we, you know, we have, uh, there, there are four full-time people in the, in our marketing department, um, right now. Um, we have, uh, you know, probably, uh, 10 to 20 different contributors who are, who are on and off depending on, um, depending on our needs, um, a agency, a few different PR agencies. Um, we have, uh, a creative director who's in New York, who's, uh, Who's a, a contributor? Um, so it's a it's a it's a very small core team um, that uh, you know for us it's important that we uh, that we have uh, you know people that are flexible enough to do kind of the the entire spectrum of of uh, of marketing and design uh, that because it because it's not a necessarily a traditional role. I mean the the needs of today may not represent the needs of tomorrow. So we need to have a lot of flexibility and we need a lot of resiliency because we're not, we may be doing something, uh, you know, fairly quickly on a, on a tight turnaround that, um, that needs to be translated to, uh, you know, Chinese. And, and, uh, so we've been able to work with our core team and then we'll have people, you know, we can, we can pass things off to people that are on different time zones and wake up in the morning and see, uh, so really it's the, the contributor model allows us to, to, to never stop if we do it right. So talking about how you build the brand and drive growth of the HTT business as the CMO, I guess the place to start is, you know, can you give us an overview of how you think about or how you've built the marketing strategy? Because there's so obviously there's a product at the end of the day, but it's not here now. It's not something that people can buy. I would imagine there's a piece of it that is employer branding, as it were, you know, the contributor network, that's a huge part of how you're going to do what you want to do. So there's that element of it as well. Uh, there's kind of how do you take something that is more futuristic and make it simple, kind of like you were explaining it at the beginning, like that to me made it so much more um, digestible in terms of, okay, I can see what this actually looks like and how it could appeal to someone like me. And then of course, you've got the X factor of Elon Musk playing in and around this space. So, so many different variables, so many things going on, break it down for us, like open the hood on the marketing strategy for HTT. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, in a sense, we're the company without a billionaire, right? So we're, we're the first Hyperloop, uh, our first Hyperloop company. There's no Elon Musk in our company. There's no Richard Branson. Uh, so that's there's a, there are advantages and, and disadvantages there. So I think for for us it's really about um, uh, you know it gives us the opportunity to uh, you know we we're not uh, we're not seen as that person. We're seen as the brand. So it's uh, you know we and we were we're a small we were a small team in the beginning with contributors. Um, who are expressing the who were expressing the brand in a lot of different ways? So for us, it was really important to get down and and uh, you know, figure out what uh, you know wh who we who we are, what we stand for, um, you know, and our and uh, our visual identity, and be very very strict about enforcing that around the world. Um, a couple of things. One is it's important. One is that you know we had uh, a lot of people in the beginning were talking about the speed of sound. 
So this is travel at the speed of sound. So Eric, if you if we were if we were to if I were to say, okay, get in get in my um, capsule and tube, and we're gonna we're gonna go the speed of sound, you might be you might be all for it. And there are about ten to fifteen percent of people that are that are like strap me in, uh, put me on the rocket, and and uh, I want to take a ride. But a lot of uh, a lot of people are, are are uncomfortable with that at traveling the speed of sound. But the reality is that we we know that feeling because we're you know we're going 500 600 and sometimes more miles per hour in a plane. So we you know and essentially the first hyperloops will be really airplane speed on the ground. So early on we've um, you know we've tried to change the way we talk about it the way we think about it from uh, from this uh, superlative super fast transportation system to uh, this is it's a system that's going airplane speed on the ground but it's doing so efficiently safely and sustainably and that those kind of pivots and the, the pivot from from something that was seen as far away future because when when you talk about hyperloop to people you know again it's because we haven't seen transportation and new transportation in our lifetime it's easy to imagine it in these hollywood settings where uh, you know we we're in the 2050s 2060s 2070s everything's vertical and eventually, eventually, like things go to things go to shit in the movie. So uh, things blow up, and and uh, so we've tried to bring it down into the world of today instead of the world of a world of far away future. So everything with the uh, you know all, all of our work with the brand has really uh, been driving that point that uh, you know, and it's it's for us as well. It's uh, you know we're we're having a lot of conversations with uh, obviously governments around the world who are trusting us to build transportation system. That are safe for their people, um, with uh, investors who are looking at the Hyperloop, and a lot of the stories are a lot of the stories of progress are not that sexy. Um, in in reality, regulations are are more challenging in a sense than the technology itself. So for us, it's been five years of work in, <clears throat> in building regulations and building safety protocols and doing all of the small things and bringing on bringing on partners in that space. To make sure that that um, that uh, you know we have the tech, but to be able to build it, so uh, it all revolves around around credibility of the company. I mean, for us, it's uh, you know we 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 know that um, there's zero tolerance for uh, for for anything to go wrong in a hyperloop system. So our marketing effort reflects that as well. So I, I think I mean things things as small as spelling mistakes or or, or uh, you know we're we're very attuned to that because we know that that what you're expecting from us as company is is uh, is flawlessness in travel and that's not a that's not a lofty goal. The bullet train in Japan has not had a single fatality in in those almost sixty years. That's uh, that's actually very possible. So uh, so credibility so credibility is a really important a really important element for us. And is that the main? marketing objective because obviously it's not selling tickets to passengers it sounds like it's not you know selling big contracts to governments is it really focused on credibility or is there a different way that you think about the objective that the marketing function is looking to drive yeah i mean for us it's it's really about communicating um the the fact that uh, this is a transportation system that is being built that is going to offer that is going to deliver on these promises and when we when we talk about the promises, they're they're they can they can seem pretty out there. For example, um, you know, if we were building a, a hyperloop from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, uh, 
on top of the Hyperloop system, we're we're applying solar panels. So what it what it becomes is a, is an LA to Vegas massive solar farm in the places where it's above ground, and the Hyperloop system in itself uses very little energy in operations. So the energy we collect in in solar exceeds the energy we would use in in operation. So it's more than a uh, you know it's uh, no this is not according to the marketing department it's according to our engineers. So that we have the potential to build a system that's actually um, that's actually generating more energy than it's using that can give back to the grid. Um, it creates a lot of interesting design uh, design challenges when you're designing a pylon. You know how can we use a, that pylon? Um, can you plug into it? Can you plug your electric vehicle into it? Um, can we provide services to land or landowners along the way? So it's really uh, you know our job is to is to deliver that information in a way that that's um, that's not fanciful, that's not that's not magical, that's credible. Um, and there's also the challenge of <clears throat> we have uh, the technology is still fairly linked to Elon Musk. So there's a there's a divide of of you know p- how people feel about him at least in the states and how they feel about the technology. So if they uh, a lot of people if they if they like uh, Elon Musk who's done some great things. Um, they're they're going to be a fan of Hyperloop, and the converse, they're they're going to believe that this is some kind of snake oil. So we have this challenge of of uh, you know there's a, a vocal minority from it was much bigger in the beginning saying this is uh, this is something that's just going to blow up and and uh, and it's never going to work. And so we've you know we heard that in the beginning and we built it, and we still hear a little bit today. So our challenge is really. Um, building a new transportation system in a world of non-believers. Um, the, the, the reality is the second time, Eric, you ride Hyperloop, it's going to be like, it's be like you, you live in the world of Hyperloop and it's completely normal. But the first time is, the first time is really the, the, the thing, the hurdle that we need to get over. Um, for us, there's always the challenge as well of, of company versus industry. Because we, you know, we, we still have, um, you know, even though Hyperloop has a, we have this amazing voice with Hyperloop, and and uh, people are, are very interested in it. Um, you st- we can still be spending our time talking about Hyperloop as a as a, as an industry, or Hyperloop TT and and the kind of the what the promise that we're delivering. So there's always a balance between for us. Uh, you know, is is this a uh, you know do we spend our time educating about Hyperloop, or do we spend our time educating about our brand? And so, what is that? look like in output. So that philosophy, that strategy, the story that you're telling or want to be telling to the world, how do you actually do that where the rubber meets the road on comms? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, a lot of our, honestly, a lot of our work is, 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 and has been one-on-one. So in meeting rooms, uh, you know, we're, we're in meetings, our our executives are in meetings uh, uh, every week with um, you know, with someone, and and a lot of the work is really uh, is really telling the story to them in a way where, uh, in a way where uh, it's credible, and then it kind of masks uh, you know everything from um, uh, you know traditional communication pieces via social media to um, <clears throat> to some to some kind of kind of short form videos that we that we've produced to uh, to announcing our achievements. And the challenge with that is that we've, you know, in the beginning there was a, a you know, we would, um, you know, we'd do, we would do everything was was amplified in a big way. We built the first passenger cap, capsule, major announcement. 
We built the first system, major announcement. And now we're in this period where a lot of it is incremental improvements. Uh, we've brought on a partner to, uh, to, assess the, <coughs> to, to assess and improve the safety of the system. Um, we've moved forward with regulations, with, uh, with a document. And it's all, it's all building to, towards a story. It's a little bit like nuclear fusion in a way where uh, you know, the, the, there are a lot of advancements that are happening in nuclear fusion, but um, it's still not there. Right. So the, the, there's a, we're, we're getting closer and closer. And, and for us, it's really um, about, uh, about the milestones along the way. A random question that just popped to mind before I know we need to wrap this up. So I mentioned at the beginning, before we started recording, that our business is all about trying to build successful challenger brands. Do you think of Hyperloop transportation technology, like the brand that you're responsible for, or the broader Hyperloop brand in general, the brand of the technology, do you view that as a challenger? And if so, how does that work into your thinking as CMO? Yeah, I think, I think both are, you know, both would, would qualify as, as challenger brands. Um, um, you know, because we're building, we're building something completely new, uh, for, uh, you know, and, and it, it, it goes in that, that type of thinking goes into really the, the everyday, I mean, for, for Hyperloop TT, we, uh, you know, we're building this brand as you would any other iconic brand. So, you know, any of the, these, these iconic brands you can think of, we need to have a presence like, uh, you know, like, like they would, um, we need to, the visual, the visual, the visual needs to be creative and stunning and, and interesting. Um, the, you know, all of the details we, we need to really, um, you know, perform on a, on the highest level to to be able to bring this to life. So, we're we're still in a sense a, a small organization who's uh, who have internal internal expectations of of being um, you know an iconic and legacy brand. So, before I let you go, Rob, last question that I always ask at the end of every interview: If people listening to this, what is one thing that they should be doing differently based on your experience and perspective? Uh, it's a it's a great question. So, uh, uh, narrowing it down to one thing, one thing differently. I think uh, uh, building resiliency in your teams. Uh, so we've uh, you know we've we're a company that's seen the extremes over the years. We have extreme extremely high moments and extremely low moments, and we've been fortunate enough. I think that's that's hardened us in a sense that we're we're an extremely resilient team that. We can wake up and it's whatever the day throws at us, I feel like we can overcome. So, uh, so if I were to if I were to look back and give myself advice, uh, you know, uh, ten years ago, I would say I would say that I would say resiliency and toughness. Love that. All right, Rob, this has been fascinating. Um, I've always been personally curious about this technology and about how you know, you and other people are building a business around it and just the future of transportation in general. So um, this was really, really fun for me. And I appreciate you taking the time. My, my pleasure, Eric. Thanks so much for, for having me on. I, uh, it, was, it was a great conversation. Enjoyed it. Cool. And hope to see you in a couple of weeks in LA. Yeah, for sure. All right. Take care. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. 
you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.